Um, so my uh, talk is going to focus on uh, moral integrity and accommodation. And uh, I apologize for, for reading the talk, but I wanted to make sure I fell within the time constraints. And about the only way for me to do that is to actually uh, read the paper, because otherwise it would be much longer. There are several reasons for accommodating health professionals' conscientious objections. They range from promoting diversity in the health professions to not discouraging morally sensitive individuals from entering the health professions. However, several writers, including myself, uh, have argued that enabling health professionals to maintain their moral integrity is among the most important and compelling reasons. Accommodation provides moral space in which health professionals can practice without compromising their moral integrity. According to this view, moral integrity-based claims provide a prima facie case for accommodation. It's only a prima facie case because other factors can trump or override a health professional's interest in maintaining moral integrity. And these factors include the impact on patients as well as the impact on colleagues and institutions. Whereas it's generally acknowledged that a moral integrity-based claim can provide a prima facie case for accommodation, there are alternative conceptions of moral integrity and corresponding different criteria for moral integrity-based claims. I want to argue that the identity conception provides a suitable criterion in the specific context of conscientious objection in healthcare. Specifically, I will defend uh, that conception against several criticisms. My aim, however, is not to offer the best philosophical account of moral integrity. My aim is considerably more limited and practical. I only want to argue that one conception of moral integrity, the identity conception, is suitable in the specific context of responding to health professionals' conscientious objections and requests for accommodation. I will begin with two preliminary points. First, an accommodation claim can be moral integrity based only if the objection is based on the health professions, professional's ethical beliefs. Suppose, for example, that a surgeon refuses to remove a brain tumor on clinical grounds. In the surgeon's judgment, the tumor is inoperable. There's only a 5% chance that the patient will survive surgery, and even if the patient were to survive, substantial cognitive impairment would be likely. In the surgeon's judgment, performing surgery in those circumstances would be contrary to sound clinical practice. To be sure, the surgeon may also believe that it's unethical to operate, but that belief would be secondary, based on her understanding of accepted clinical norms. The latter are the primary grounds for the refusal to operate, and it's only in virtue of the surgeon's belief that operating would violate those standards that she also believes that it would be unethical to do so. Indeed, insofar as surgery would violate standards of sound clinical practice, a refusal to operate would be expected, 
and the surgeon wouldn't need to seek an accommodation for her ethical beliefs. Generally, conscience-based refusals occur only when health professionals object to providing legal, professionally accepted, clinically appropriate services within the scope of their clinical competence. A second criticism uh, is, I mean, second preliminary point, in order for health professionals' moral integrity to be at stake, the ethical beliefs at issue must be among her most important core moral beliefs. One can violate peripheral ethical beliefs without undermining one's moral integrity. It's only when one violates one's most important self-defining ethical beliefs that one fails to maintain one's moral integrity. Lynn McFall draws a useful distinction between defeasible and identity-conferring commitments. The former um, can be, as she puts it, sacrificed without remorse and without undermining one's integrity. By contrast, the latter, according to McFall, reflect what we take to be the most important and so determine to a large extent our identities. One's moral integrity is compromised only if one acts contrary to one's identity-conferring commitments. The following case illustrates this distinction. An 89-year-old nursing home resident with advanced Alzheimer's is admitted to a hospital ICU after presenting in the ED with pneumonia and kidney failure. An intensivist believes that providing life support would be wasteful and an unjust allocation of scarce resources. The patient's family members insist on providing life support and hospital policy doesn't re uh, allow refusals, unilateral refusals by clinicians in such circumstances. However, the intensivist asks for an accommodation. Asks for an accommodation. He requests assigning the care of the patient to other intensivists who don't object. If caring for the patient would comprise an injustice of a type that the intensivist routinely tolerates, rather than a perceived grave injustice such as discrimination based on race or sexual orientation, it would only require violating a defeasible commitment. Accordingly, although caring for the patient might give rise to moral distress, it would not compromise his moral integrity, and he would not have a moral integrity-based accommodation claim. However, there are other reasons for permitting clinicians to transfer care of patients in such situations. For example, allowing physicians to transfer the care of patients to other clinicians, even when their moral integrity is not at stake, might be good for patient care and also for clinician morale. The notion of um, the notion of core identity conferring ethical beliefs is central to the uh, identity conception of moral integrity. According to that conception, a health professional can legitimately claim that an accommodation is needed to enable her to maintain her moral integrity if and only if she has core or identity conferring moral commitments, she consistently acts in accordance with her core or identity conferring moral commitments, 
And finally, denying an accommodation will require her to act contrary to her core or identity conferring moral commitments. The identity conception has been subject to a number of criticisms that might call into question its suitability for determining whether health professionals have genuine moral integrity-based accommodation claims. One criticism maintains that the identity conception fails to include a social component. Cheshire Calhoun has voiced this criticism and endorses a social conception of integrity as standing for something. People who consistently act in accordance with their core moral commitments and thereby maintain their moral integrity, understood as identity, might be said to stand for something, namely their core moral commitments. However, they nevertheless might not stand for something in relation to others. Standing for something in this social sense requires interacting with others and engaging in a process of community deliberation. And according to Calhoun, standing for something in this social sense is an essential characteristic of integrity. As she puts it, integrity is tightly connected to viewing oneself as a member of an evaluating community and to caring about what that community endorses. Calhoun's justification of this social conception of integrity is based in part on a process understanding of moral knowledge, according to which we discover what is worth doing through a process of social deliberation. Individuals contribute their best judgment, but a commitment to the deliberative process requires openness to the views of others. According to Calhoun, integrity calls us, calls us simultaneously to stand behind our convictions and to take seriously others' doubts about them. A Marco Rubio moment. Um, that's for people who know politics in the States. Um, this is not the place to assess Calhoun's deliberative conception of moral knowledge. Of more relevance in the present context is her assumption that understanding integrity as identity cannot account for what is said to be the primary value of integrity, which is participation in community deliberation about what has worth and value. Defenders of the identity conception of integrity can respond as follows. They need not question the value of participation in community deliberation along the lines advocated by Calhoun. Indeed, they can grant that a disposition to engage in community deliberation is a social value or a social virtue. However, they can question whether it is warranted to incorporate such a disposition or virtue into a conception of integrity. That is, they might claim there is no conceptual connection between integrity and viewing oneself as a member of an evaluating community and caring about what the community endorses. I won't pursue this conceptual issue, nor will I consider another issue associated with Calhoun's conception of integrity, which is what would count as the relevant community for a health professional who requests a moral integrity-based uh, accommodation claim. Would it be an organization or institution? 
such as a hospital, nursing home, or health clinic. A professional group or association, such as the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Medical Association, the British Medical Association, or the American Nurses Association? Would it be a community of patients, or perhaps a community of citizens? I'm not going to address this question. Instead, I want to consider another. And that is, is moral integrity valuable and worth protecting only if it is understood to include participation in a community deliberative process uh, about what is worth doing? More specifically, do health professionals' moral integrity-based refusal merit accommodation only if they are committed to engage in the kind of community deliberative process Calhoun advocates? Suppose a health professional is not willing to engage in a community deliberative process in which she presents and defends her views and considers the views of others. It might be argued that her unwillingness is a sign of a flaw or shortcoming in her moral character. But is it a sufficient reason to refuse to grant an accommodation that will enable her to practice her profession and maintain her moral integrity understood as identity. Now Calhoun herself suggests a negative answer when she identifies a number of reasons for thinking that integrity as identity is valuable and worth protecting. Uh, and as she puts it, the thought might be that the depth of character that comes with deep commitments is an admirable characteristic of persons. Or the thought might be that deep attachments are part of any life that could count for us as a, as a good, full, and flourishing human life. Or the thought might be that only a life containing deep attachments will be rich enough to compel our continuing interest in staying around and participating in morality. Having and acting on identity-conferring commitments is thus valuable, not because of the sheer fact that they are one's own, but because having and acting on deep commitments is part of any admirable, flourishing life worth living, and that kind of life is what has value. Now there's at least one additional and perhaps oops, uh, there's at least one additional and perhaps even more important reason for thinking that moral integrity as identity is valuable and worth protecting. Acting contrary to one's identity-conferring commitments can have considerable psychological and personal costs, such as feelings of guilt and shame, a sense of self-betrayal and personal disintegration, and even a loss of self-respect. Arguably, then, it's unjustified to hold that a moral integrity-based claim fails to establish a prima facie case for accommodation if integrity is, in, is understood as identity. Like Calhoun, Carolyn McLeod criticizes the identity conception and endorses a social conception according to which persons of integrity must stand for their moral convictions by engaging in a process of community deliberation. McLeod argues that an unwillingness to engage in a deliberative process with others indicates a suspicion that one lacks a cohesive, integrated set of moral convictions. 
As she explains it, the worry about people who avoid rather than respond to controversy is that they must sense that problems exist in their belief systems, but they try to ignore those problems. Their purpose may be to maintain some mental order, but the fact that they aim, however consciously, to avoid controversy suggests that they already experience some disorder. Hence, they are not as integrated as they could be. They will need to respond to the challenge they face in order to achieve higher levels of integration. Now, I think it's doubtful that a reluctance to subject one's moral convictions to a deliberative process is a reliable indicator of a fear that flaws or weaknesses in one's convictions will be revealed. But putting this problem aside, McLeod's analysis doesn't pose a challenge to the identity conception of integrity. Quite the contrary, it suggests that a willingness to engage in a deliberative process is a condition of integrity as identity. According to McLeod's analysis, when people decline to engage in a deliberative process, they sense that they don't have a cohesive, integrated set of core moral convictions. Let's assume their, percep their perception provides evidence of the absence of a cohesive, integrated set of core moral convictions. But a cohesive, integrated set of core moral convictions is a condition of integrity as identity. Hence, a willingness to engage in a deliberative process would be a condition of integrity as identity, and the identity conception would not be susceptible to the criticism that it fails to include a deliberative condition. A second criticism of the identity conception can draw on Elizabeth Ashford's distinction between objective and subjective integrity. As she explains the distinction, for the agent to have objective integrity, her self-conception must be grounded in reality. It must not be based on her being seriously deceived either about empirical facts or about the moral obligations she actually has. In particular, her self-conception as being morally decent must be grounded in her leading a genuinely morally decent life. By contrast, the mere possession of a coherent self-conception, however mistaken, can be called subjective integrity. Moral integrity understood as identity is subjective rather than objective integrity. Now Ashford compares the two conceptions from the perspective of what agents value. She claims that objective integrity is a considerably more plausible candidate than subjective integrity for what agents actually take to be valuable. Agents are said to value objective integrity rather than subjective integrity. As she puts it, we value having objective integrity as opposed to merely having a self-conception according to which we are leading a worthwhile life. Accordingly, it might be claimed, since it's objective integrity, not integrity understood as identity, that agents value, it is only the former, 
objective integrity that merits protection and accommodation. In response, Ashford's claim about the value of integrity to an agent is plausible only if it's modified to what agents take to be objective integrity. That is, even when agents are mistaken about the nature of a morally decent life, they might nevertheless believe that their conception is genuine, correct, or justified. So at most, believing that one satisfies the condition of objective moral integrity, not actually satisfying them, is crucial when assessing the value to an agent of integrity and the cost to an agent of failing to maintain it. It seems unlikely that agents who have core moral convictions associated with their self-conception do not believe that they are committed to a genuinely morally decent life. Hence, if the primary consideration is the value to agents of maintaining their moral integrity, both objective integrity and integrity understood as identity can merit protection. Now, Ashford doesn't apply the distinction between objective and subjective integrity to conscientious objection. Instead, she uses that distinction to respond to Bernard Williams' claim that utilitarianism is incompatible with integrity. Ashford responds to this claim that this would be a fatal flaw in utilitarianism or any ethical theory only in relation to objective integrity. Whereas objective integrity may be an appropriate conception of moral integrity in the context of identifying constraints on an acceptable ethical theory, it is not an appropriate conception in the context of conscientious objection. Indeed, to understand moral integrity as objective integrity would sound the death knell for conscientious objection in healthcare um, and the practice of accommodating health professionals with diverse conceptions of a morally decent life. Lynn McFall provides <clears throat> the basis for a third criticism of the identity conception. She endorses a substantive requirement, a reasonableness condition, which is weaker than objective integrity. According to her, when we grant integrity to a person, we need not approve of his or her principles or commitments, but we must at least recognize them as ones a reasonable person might take to be of great importance and ones that a reasonable person might be tempted to sacrifice in some lesser yet still recognizable goods. It may not be possible to spell out these conditions without circularity, but that, but that this is what underlies our judgments of integrity seems clear enough. McFall presents this uh, reasonableness requirement as a means to block what she takes to be counterintuitive judgments about integrity. She considers, for example, the case of a wine connoisseur who fought a strong temptation to abandon his principles and drink a soda rather than fine wine. Even if a core component of his self-conception is to be a connoisseur of fine <coughs> wine, and it would be shameful to him to prefer a soda to a premium wine, McFall maintains that it would be counterintuitive to assert that resisting his strong temptation to choose soda over wine displayed integrity. 
Insofar as the principle of connoisseurship is not sufficiently important to satisfy the reasonableness requirement, that requirement serves to block the counterintuitive claim that, wine, that the wine connoisseur displayed integrity when he resisted the temptation to drink soda. Now, as McFall suggests, when moral integrity is at issue and principles are limited to moral principles, blocking such counterintuitive judgments about integrity may not require a reasonableness requirement. However, if a reasonableness requirement is accepted in relation to moral convictions, it may unjustifiably limit the scope of those that qualify for, uh, for moral integrity-based accommodation. As McFall admits, it may not be possible to specify the criterion of reasonableness without circularity. In the absence of a justifiable criterion determining whether moral convictions are sufficiently important to warrant accommodation may be unacceptably subjective. Nevertheless, as a fourth criticism of the identity conception, um, a fourth it can be objected that insofar as the identity conception includes no substantive moral constraints, it's unacceptable. Calhoun offers an <coughs> objection along these lines. As she presents the objection, those who endorse the identity picture of integrity admit that on this view, one might have integrity even though one's identity-conferring projects are non-moral or even morally despicable. This is because deeply identifying with what one does puts one integrity beyond question. Individuals who consistently act in accordance with core identifying, uh, identity conferring convictions that are racist, sexist, or anti-Semitic might satisfy the identity criterion of moral integrity, but they are clearly deficient in moral virtue. Hence, it might be argued, any acceptable conception of moral integrity must include some substantive moral constraint and the identity conception must be rejected. In the context of conscientious objection in healthcare, however, it is not necessary to incorporate a substantive moral constraint within the conception of moral integrity. An alternative approach is to maintain that unacceptable moral beliefs are not incompatible with moral integrity and to nevertheless assert that it's justified to deny accommodation when a health professional's core moral convictions include abhorrent moral beliefs. In such cases, it can be held either that moral integrity-based claims fail to establish even a prima facie case for accommodation, or that a prima facie case for accommodation is outweighed by the importance of not facilitating morally despicable behavior. The latter response would assume that the primary reason for enabling health professionals to maintain their moral integrity understood as identity is not because it's thought that moral integrity in that sense is always a desirable character trait or virtue. Rather, the primary reason is taken to be the importance to agents of maintaining their moral integrity understood as identity and the cost to them of failing to maintain it. Since there's some disagreement about whether integrity is an unconditional virtue or admirable character trait, it may be preferable to justify a, a refusal to accommodate 
by citing settled moral principles rather than relying on a contested conception of moral integrity. <coughs> Sorry. Okay. So the fifth and last criticism faults the identity conception for not <coughs> including any intellectual integrity requirement. If we understand moral integrity simply as a consistent commitment to one's core moral convictions, it would follow that fanatics should be considered paragons of moral integrity. But, it's argued, attributing moral integrity to anyone who is blindly and uncritically committed to principles is counterintuitive. Whereas moral integrity is considered to be an admirable character trait, fanaticism clearly is not. Indeed, one of the reasons Calhoun offers to support her conception of integrity as standing for something is that it rules out fanaticism. A commitment to the process of community deliberation associated with the standing for something conception of integrity is incompatible with fanatically adhering to one's core moral convictions. Mark Helfont excludes fanatics by adopting a conception of moral integrity that includes a critical reasoning requirement. According to him, persons of integrity embrace a moral point of view that urges them to be conceptually clear, logically consistent, appraised of relevant empirical evidence, and careful about acknowledging as well as weighing relevant moral considerations. Persons of integrity impose these restrictions on themselves since they are concerned not simply with taking any moral position, but with pursuing a commitment to do what is best. In other words, it's not the case that <coughs> persons of integrity are committed to some predetermined principle or ideal, but are instead committed to an open moral perspective for the sake of doing what is best, all things considered. And Greg Sherkowski supports a critical reasoning requirement by conceptualizing integrity as an excellence of reason consisting in a cluster of epistemic virtues. In response to the specific concern about fanaticism, it can be granted that fanaticism is a character flaw. But it can be questioned whether that character flaw is incompatible with moral integrity. To assume incompatibility begs the question, an alternative approach would be to allow for the possibility that moral integrity is not conceptually incompatible with fanatically clinging, uh, clinging to one's core moral convictions and argue that when moral integrity rises to the level of fanatical commitment to a person's core moral convictions, it doesn't warrant, it doesn't warrant protection. Once again, it's arguable that it's preferable to rely on settled moral principles rather than a contested conception of moral integrity. In response to the broader reasoning requirements, such as those proposed by Halfen and Sharkovsky, it's undeniably highly desirable for agents to accept moral convictions only if they can withstand a thorough critical assessment, such as considering reasons for and against moral beliefs, ascertaining whether moral beliefs are coherent and internally consistent, and assuring that beliefs are compatible with available empirical evidence. Um, I would lose my credibility as a philosopher if I denied that those were desirable characteristics. 
However, there are two reasons for not requiring health professionals who seek moral integrity preserving accommodations to satisfy such epistemic requirements. First, in view of the importance to agents of maintaining their moral integrity, understood as identity, it may be unwarranted to reject integrity-based claims for accommodation if a health professional does not satisfy such stringent epistemic conditions. Second, if health professionals are required to demonstrate to supervisor, supervisors or committees that they satisfy epistemic requirements when they seek a, an accommodation, there's a danger that such determinations will not be objective and unbiased and will uh, result in inappropriate denials of accommodation. In any event, if epistemic requirements are thought to be appropriate constraints on accommodation, they should be supported directly rather than indirectly by incorporating them into a contestable conception of moral integrity. Moreover, lest it be thought that epistemic requirements are needed to protect patients from unwarranted harm, this objective is more, directively and more directly and effectively accomplished by constraints on accommodation that explicitly protect patients. For example, a constraint might state that accommodation will be granted only if it will not interfere <coughs> with a patient's timely access to clinically appropriate healthcare services. Another constraint might disallow accommodation if granting it will interfere with a patient's timely access to information about clinically relevant healthcare services. Now, although I have questioned the justifiability of incorporating a relatively stringent epistemic requirement into the concept of moral integrity, <coughs> there's a, a weaker requirement that strikes me as both reasonable and defensible. And that is, it, that is a requirement that empirical beliefs not be demonstrably false. I'm suggesting this as a constraint on accommodation and not the conceptual component of moral integrity. A failure to satisfy this constraint is illustrated by uh, pharmacists. There was a study, several studies of pharmacists who objected to uh, emergency contraception, and uh, sadly, several pharmacists were under the mistaken belief that uh, emergency contraception has the same mechanism of, uh, of acting as um, mifepristone mifepristone, which is an abortifacient. Um, now, in the case of this, I would say if a pharmacist's objection is based on what is clearly a, de a, de a demonstrably false belief, then that accommodation should not be granted. So let me conclude by reiterating what I said at the outset. Uh, unlike many philosophers I have cited, my aim has not been to offer the best philosophical account of moral integrity. My aim was considerably more limited and practical. I only wanted to show that one conception of moral integrity, the identity conception, um, is suitable in the context of responding to health professionals, conscientious objections, and requests for accommodation. Thank you.